for December 2nd, 2015. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. I'm begging you, please. I'm feeling drained. I need love. You charge me up like electricity. Don't stop my heart with your love. There's an energy when you hold me, when you touch me. It's so powerful. I can feel it when you hold me, when you touch me. It's so powerful. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today, we'll be speaking with Jason Berwin, Policy and Advocacy Director of the Energy Storage Association, or ESA, in Washington, D.C. The ESA is a roughly 200-member group of electric sector stakeholders, including utilities, independent power producers, energy service companies, technology developers, and component suppliers, whose members operate both transmission and distribution-connected energy storage projects using a variety of technologies. We're discussing storage today because everyone recognizes that at some point it will be necessary if renewables are to supply a high percentage of grid power. Now, in episodes 2, 3, and 4, we talked about how far renewables can go on the grid without storage, and as far as I'm aware, not one country has reached the point where they simply can't deploy any more renewables because they lack storage. But everyone agrees that at some point it will be necessary because, as we all know, the sun goes down and the wind doesn't blow continuously. This leaves aside renewables like geothermal and marine energy, which could in theory supply power 24-7. But those technologies have yet to scale to any significant level, so we're really talking about wind and solar today. When most people think of storage, they think of batteries, especially since Tesla's high-profile unveiling of its Powerwall battery system earlier this year. That's probably because residential solar systems that have backup capability use batteries. But in non-residential applications, there are actually a whole variety of other storage technologies, including pumped hydro, compressed air, flywheels, heat storage systems, and more. And there are actually many different kinds and chemistries of batteries other than the lithium-ion sort being sold by Tesla and other companies. But again, these are mostly used in commercial and utility applications where regular folks never see them. And it is in those applications, particularly on the transmission grid, where some of the most interesting storage projects are happening. But we have a few regulatory and market hurdles to cross before the real potential of storage on the grid can be realized, and that's why I've asked Jason Berwin to join us today. So let's bring Jason into the conversation. Welcome, Jason, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Great to be here. All right. So about a week ago, you testified before FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which has authority over the interstate trade of electricity. 
And in your remarks, you mentioned that storage can act as generation, load, or transmission and distribution infrastructure. Now, that's going to be kind of an unfamiliar concept, I think, to a lot of people who just think about it as sort of energy being supplied. A vice president of Southern California Edison called storage the Swiss army knife of the energy world. And in fact, a recent review of the literature by the Rocky Mountain Institute, where I work, identified 37 different services that storage can provide. So can you briefly elaborate on some of these different services, some of these different roles that storage can play? Sure thing. 37. Everyone has a number. That's one of the things you find is that there are many services that storage provides. I guess the way you categorize and slice and dice it will change that number, but you can probably put this into a few different buckets. Certainly, energy storage provides energy, and what a lot of folks, I think, are interested in is the ability to time shift that energy, what you might call energy arbitrage, particularly of interest to folks who are interested in seeing energy storage store, for example, sunlight from the day through solar PV and discharge the electrons at night that are generated by that PV. So that's one, but only one. In addition to those energy services, there's ancillary services that energy storage provides, the grid stabilizing grid services, things like frequency regulation, which ensures that the frequency of the grid remains within a narrow band, and a number of other different sort of services are in that bucket, from things like spinning reserves to black start resources. Those are things that oftentimes are monetized in wholesale markets. You've got these transmission and distribution capacity values, right, where storage can act as effectively a transmission or distribution resource, for example, by shaving peak on those particular lines, and so therefore deferring capacity upgrades and acting as effective capacity, alternatively relieving congestion in the transmission and distribution system. And also providing things like voltage support, power quality sort of, when on the distribution system. And then you've got, of course, the range of end user values, things like not just backup power, but also helping people manage their energy to avoid demand charges or to you know, optimize across time of use rates, things of that nature. Those are sort of the grid services that you could enumerate. And then beyond those specific services, you've got values sort of around this. You've got things like certainly the lower environmental impacts potentially from energy storage, such as the fact that by and of itself, it has no emissions. It does not have a huge land footprint. It does not generally have water footprint for planning purposes. It is modular. It is something that you can build in very granular increments so that you can scale it up or down to what your system needs, and it can be built fairly quickly. So there's a degree to which it helps with uncertainty and managing your, your uncertain future in your energy system. But without going too much deeper into it, that's sort of a flavor for the many different things folks are talking about when they talk about energy storage. Yeah, well, there's a lot of different roles that it plays there. So with all these different services that storage can provide, I think the really critical question right now is how do we value it? That's the fundamental question. Do we create a special value of storage tariff, as we've seen discussed in solar markets like in Minnesota, where you've got a special 
tariff for the value of solar. Uh, that would be kind of the equivalent concept. Or do we create markets in these various services where the value of each service would fluctuate? That is the million-dollar question in some respects. The things that energy storage does, some of it is easily monetized, right? If you're in a wholesale market, you've got products, you've got markets, things like frequency regulation, you can literally bid in. And that's an effective way to value things using markets and prices. Time tested. (laughs) Time tested. The issue, of course, is that a lot of services are not necessarily in competitive markets. A lot of the value that storage is trying to provide is rate recoverable, tariff-based things traditionally. Certainly if you're talking about transmission and distribution capacity, that's not something that's generally open to competition. And for that matter, if you're in a vertically integrated market, your ancillary services aren't something that is competitively bid either, right? Hang on, let's just step back and and unpack that just a little bit. I think I know what you mean, but for the benefit of our listeners, what do you mean when you say rate recoverable? Sure. So there are certain assets that a utility will procure or build themselves, depending on what kind of a market you're in. And those things are oftentimes intended for the reliability of the system, right? You build a transmission line bigger, or you build a new set of distribution lines so that you can run your electric system reliably and safely. Right. And traditionally, that's the kind of thing where it's considered a natural monopoly and state utility commissions allow their utilities to have these sort of regulated monopolies and to be able to build or acquire these assets and that the cost of those assets is then basically averaged out over all of the kilowatt hours that are expected to be consumed over a period of time. And then that's basically made a small part of the rate. So you and I and everyone pays a small amount of that every time we consume electricity. Right. Okay. And that's not just transmission and distribution, but certainly that's the most obvious case for when things are made rate recoverable. Right. Okay. So then back to this question of value of storage. I mean, do you think it's likely that all of these services are going to be valued through markets? Or do you think that some of them are more likely to get special tariffs assigned to those values of each service? This is a place where I think there's a lot of innovation to happen. And that's exciting and terrifying if perhaps you're a regulator, but exciting. Wait, terrifying? Was that a ton? (laughs) Oh, man, that's awful. Oh, oh, God, yeah. No, I didn't even catch myself on that. That's how deep in this I am. (laughs) Yes, I think that, you know, you're starting to see new innovations on this. I think some examples are like what's happening in New York, the Brooklyn Queens Demand Management Program. Right. There's a substation there and its capacity is going to be exceeded, but it's in a very large metropolitan area. So it's very space constrained and very expensive to actually upgrade the capacity there. So instead of spending a billion dollars to upgrade that substation, Con Ed, with the blessing, one might say the prodding, of the New York Public Service Commission is now bidding out peak load reduction that's cited on the distribution system so that instead of spending a billion dollars to build an upgraded substation, they can spend for perhaps something less than that that provides effectively the same capacity. And that's going to be a mixture of things like demand-side resources like DR 
and energy efficiency, but also energy storage. Hmm. And that's a really interesting case, but that's the exception. And I think it will probably be the exception for quite some time. A lot of states are going to be looking at energy storage and saying, well, we're not sure we can go competitively bid these things. We want to make sure that we have the reliability that we want. And so we're going to have to place some sort of value on storage so that we can guide either its procurement by utilities, either as the resource itself or the service that that resource provides, and put it into our planning. Or we can go and maybe start to put our toe in the water for things like RFPs. Right. So obviously, if there's a designated tariff that's going to value the service that this storage system provides, that's going to give enough certainty to the developer who's putting up that storage system that they're actually going to get paid back for it, fundamentally. That's the hope. Yeah. And the thing is, setting that value, you know, you've seen some of these, I know certainly in Minnesota, in Maine, I believe it's clean power research folks who put together the value of storage ideas there, right? sort of listing out a method that follows on the value of solar yep. methods that have been developed. And they look very similar, right? Where you're yep. taking this stack, you like enumerate these various different values and costs, right. and then stack them all together, you know, avoided energy cost, avoided capacity costs, uh, avoided pipeline costs, potentially. Avoided carbon emissions. Yeah, and then you have exactly these these social costs of carbon, social cost of SO2, of NOx. You could even put in things like avoided fuel price uncertainty, right, if you're displaced sure. fuel. And you can build that up. And that's certainly one approach we're seeing. And I think that that can be certainly a, a useful waypoint. I also think that a lot of the interesting work right now is on valuation of storage from more of a systems and system planning standpoint, right? These are things like production cost models that are factoring into integrated resource planning that will eventually then, of course, file into RFO design. I'm sorry, RFO? Requests for offers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what, what happens is if a state utility commission can create a, designate a method for valuing storage in these planning processes like integrated resource planning, it can also then give guidance to the utilities for how it's going to view things like bids for storage. And then the utilities might, for example, be creating RFPs where they go seek these offers and they can give guidelines for how those offers are going to be valued, right? Right. So it's slightly different. But fundamentally, the things that we're talking about are related. And certainly the tariff for a value of storage is something that you're going to see much more behind the meter, whereas the things I'm talking about with sort of system planning are much more front of the meter. Yeah, the stuff you're talking about is happening more on the on the transmission grid or kind of at the bulk storage level, at the utility level. Folks are talking about this also as potentially part of distribution resource planning, right? Right, right. So a day after your testimony before FERC, they issued Order 819, which established a competitive primary frequency response market across RTOs and ISOs. So briefly, if you could explain for our listeners what that means. Sure. Primary frequency response is the service of when your grid suddenly goes pear-shaped. 
That is to say, the frequency in the grid, which is 60 hertz, starts to deviate significantly, maybe because a generator has tripped offline unexpectedly or something of that nature. Right. And so you start diving, you know, 59.9, 59.8, 59.7. And that falling frequency, you need to catch that fast, right, and slow it down. And so frequency response is that resource that can respond nearly instantaneously and slow that dropping frequency such that then you get resources that can respond not quite as fast but still pretty fast and bottom it out and then some resources that can come on a little less fast than that that help bring the frequency back up right right the primary frequency response is that first line of defense of slowing it down right catch it before it falls too fast yeah and then bring in some support underneath it yep okay exactly Okay, so we understand what primary frequency response is. So it seems that on the question of special tariffs versus markets here, FERC has opened a clear path to creating a market in frequency response rather than giving that a special tariff or evaluation. For which I think a lot of folks applaud them. Now, I might add that, and I, I, I should do my homework a little more, but my understanding is that it creates a market for frequency response I'm not entirely sure if it requires the ISOs and RTOs to go seek all of their primary frequency response from that market, but we might have to check back in on that. Suffice it to say that if you're going to create a market for primary frequency response, that means folks like, for example, a storage operator can say, oh, I can provide that service, I can bid that into the market on whatever scheduling basis, and there's a supply and there's a demand and those prices will fluctuate and you don't have to have a regulator sitting there scratching their head about how much primary frequency response is worth because presumably there's competitive offers for it. Right. Okay. So it seems then that the ground zero for bulk storage on the grid in the U.S. right now is happening on the PJM interconnection, which is the RTO or the Regional Transmission Organization that operates a wholesale power market and actually operates the grid between 13 states in the Northeast and the District of Columbia. So it's one of the biggest RTOs in the country. It constitutes one-fifth of U.S. electric power demand. Now, Back in 2013, when PJM decided to consider allowing storage to bid into the capacity market along with conventional generators, it was clear that bulk storage was definitely coming to the grid and in a big way. And I, I wrote a couple of articles about it back then, which we'll link to in the show notes. But now, as you noted in your remarks to FERC, PJM has implemented a market for this fast responding frequency regulation resources of which over 200 megawatts of advanced energy storage now operates. So since PJM implemented that market, procurement of conventional generation has fallen by 30%, you say, which is evidence that storage can meet the grid's needs, in this case, the need for frequency regulation, at a lower cost than conventional generators could, and at the same time, increase the usage of the existing generators which basically makes the whole system more efficient. But the market rules governing additional so-called ancillary services beyond frequency regulation have been unclear on a number of counts and, and held storage back, I think, from, 
from further advances. So first, can you remind our listeners briefly why storage is a good way to provide these ancillary services? Sure. So what makes energy storage, in this case I'm talking about specifically battery energy storage, conventional electrochemical, is that it can respond really fast. You can basically near instantaneously dispatch it. And you can also dispatch it with a level of precision that is very difficult for other resources to provide. I should add that also flywheels are a part of that as well in terms of mechanical being very fast to respond. And the speed and precision of the resources is particularly useful for frequency regulation in which you're following very moment-to-moment fluctuations in the frequency of the grid. So speed and precision there is the name of the game. And that's why energy storage is such a valuable resource for frequency regulation. So how is it that the market rules have been unclear about the ways in which storage can participate? Well, so in PJM, the rules have been very clear for frequency regulation. And that's part of why you see this build of now 200 megawatts of energy storage in the frequency regulation market in PJM. That's what happens when you clarify those rules, and those rules are intended to capture the value that energy storage can provide. Right, right. But in other ancillary services, and for that matter, in capacity, the rules may not be quite so clear, and the market designs themselves may not, for example, try to capture that value. So what kind of clarifications are still needed? Well, certainly in capacity, for example, one idea here is to provide capacity, you have to be able to inject electrons on an open-ended basis. So for an indefinite period of time. Right. Okay. Which, if you're a generator, that's what you do. You, you keep feeding the coal into the planet. It keeps putting out electricity. Right. And so that is why, traditionally, these coal and gas plants have been capacity. Energy storage obviously has to have enough charge for it to discharge. And if it runs out, I mean, it has to stop, recharge, and then go back. So when you have it open-ended, energy storage just has too much liabilities. Even if most of the time, the duration of those needs for capacity are only a couple hours, it's the one time where the call for capacity is six hours or eight hours or 10 hours that a lot of these resources would just suffer massive penalties for not showing up. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh. And PJM has these capacity performance rules, which might be a partial way to facilitate storage in the capacity markets. But across other RTOs and ISOs, certainly this is, a, this is something that is equally unclear. For ancillary services, I should add, We talk about PJM and frequency regulation and how great it is that that market has been clarified. But in a lot of other markets like MISO, SPP, there are not rules or very unclear rules for how energy storage can participate. And certainly when you look at frequency regulation, there's no fast signal. There's no no capturing of the speed of these resources response in the way the market operates. So they're effectively competing with conventional resources, but there's no value for them to be fast. Right. Okay, we're going to get to that point in just a second. But just for a minute here, I want to stay on order 819. So 
One of the things that wasn't immediately apparent to me in Order 819 was whether aggregated behind-the-meter storage resources could participate in this new primary frequency response market. So just to decode that a bit for listeners who might not be completely up-to-date on the jargon, all that means is that a bunch of residential customers, for example, had battery systems at their houses. They could cut a deal with a company that would bundle them all together in order to be able to let them bid into the market as a single large entity, just like a coal plant can. So kind of creates a level playing field there. But until recently, these so-called behind-the-meter storage systems were not allowed to play in these markets. So does Order 819 address that? Would it permit residential and commercial storage systems to participate in this new primary frequency response market? Well, I guess in theory, <laughs> the trouble is that You've got other barriers to behind-the-meter storage aggregating to provide these resources in wholesale markets. Just the metering and telemetry issues have not been worked out, for example. If you need an ISO-grade meter for each of those resources, that's going to just be very cost-prohibitive. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And that's certainly something that you see folks starting to try and address in places like California. California ISO is working on revisions to rules so that distributed resources, including storage, can participate in wholesale markets in aggregated fashion. But even if the market is supposedly doesn't preclude it, other aspects may be too much of a barrier for that to occur at this time. Okay, so with this new FERC ruling, it doesn't specifically rule aggregated resources in or out. It's just sort of open. Well, that is my understanding insofar as you could participate. Again, there's some questions, though, about that if you're behind the meter, and this is, I think, what you're seeing being worked out in California, right, is questions about how energy storage is going to, from behind the meter, provide these wholesale resources in a manner that's both consistent with what ISO RTOs need, as well as with the system that they're currently on. You know, and what I mean by that is, for example, if your energy storage behind the meter is doing other things for the system, then is there, you know, there's folks that are talking about the question of are we taking care of double counting, for example. And to the credit of the participants in California ISOs proceeding on this, I think that those questions are being addressed and addressed well and resolved. But these are things that nonetheless are things that you have to sort out before you're going to have this open, clear chance for aggregated behind-the-meter storage resources to provide these things. And this is all, of course, assuming that the Supreme Court upholds Order 745, which we haven't even talked about, and I'm not sure that you want to get into that. Well, actually, <laughs> I did want to talk about that. I mean, sometimes I wonder if we aren't bound to keep running afoul of outmoded restrictions, essentially, as the progression to a distributed grid continues. I mean, FERC ran into a legal challenge with Order 745, which disputed its authority to allow demand response to be traded on the wholesale energy markets. And that's just one sort of distributed energy resource in a very narrow regulatory instance, right? Because all sorts of aggregations on both the load and the supply side could conceivably face similar challenges as we deploy more and more of these distributed resources on the grid. So do you think we might be better off if we started thinking more about fundamental reforms, like reconsidering the whole history of PURPA and PUCA before that and the very concept of a qualifying facility in order to come up with a regulatory framework that's better adapted to the grid topology of the future? Yes. 
<laughs> I mean, good answer. <laughs> uh, sure, let's rework the system from the ground up. Let me put it this way. Certainly, if the Supreme Court decides to ultimately overturn FERC's Order 745, and the rumbling in the industry is that it's looking like that may be the case, that's going to sink a very intensive wall between the jurisdictions of state utility commissions and wholesale markets regulated by FERC. And this idea that you might have something that's distribution connected but participating in wholesale markets becomes really tough. I'm not sure how you do it. You know, it depends on also the narrowness or the expansiveness of the Supreme Court's ruling. We have yet to see, but fundamentally this Federal Power Act separation between where federal and state authorities begin and end is a really important question as our grids become two-way and as distributed resources bear on bulk operations. So yeah, we're working with multiple decades old frameworks with technologies that are moving a lot faster. Yeah. And this is something that just keeps coming up in the various discussions that I'm having with people on this show is that we're essentially plugging in new types of technologies to an old grid and to an old regulatory environment that was built up around that old grid. And we're having to make a lot of adjustments. And sometimes it seems like sort of fiddling at the edges and making these adjustments in a piecemeal fashion will get us where we're trying to go. And then in other cases, it seems like you really sort of need to sort of start over and attempt a more comprehensive reform, like the sort of thing that they're doing in in New York. But without going too far down that road, I just wanted to raise that question because it is a question of trying to take new types of technology and adapt them into a regulatory framework in this case that it's not really well suited to. Yeah. Suffice it to say that energy storage gets to be the poster child for, hey, the grid was never designed for us. It was not something that was contemplated with the technical design of the grid and certainly not with the surrounding regulation and economics of the grid. And so there's a lot of value in energy storage not surprising to hear that from someone who works for the Energy Storage Association. But no, I mean, very <laughs> truly, between the array of services that energy storage can provide and the flexibility of that resource, to move to a future where we value flexibility and we need these many different services to be provided by, for example, a technology that can be fed by cleaner generation sources we really do need to contemplate how to reshape our grid operations and our market operations and our regulatory compacts to ensure that we can realize those values. It's not just a matter of, hey, this is cool and you better let it in. But if you do it right, going to be less cost to the ratepayer and enable a cleaner grid. Yeah, exactly. In the past, you know, we didn't have a need to design markets around storage systems because apart from hydro, all we had was generators. And for that matter, those hydro systems were basically considered generators. They weren't really acting as storage systems per se. So the rules, the market rules we have, assume that if a unit is supplying capacity, 
or frequency modulation that it's also supplying energy and probably supplying it 24-7. Whereas with these new storage systems coming online, that may or may not be true. You might have some storage units that are just supplying very short duration frequency support, for example, without supplying a significant amount of energy. So it's really a problem of needing to adapt the market rules to a new type of technology that's coming onto the grid and, and not the other way around. Yeah, well, one would hope. I mean, it's always the burden of the new entrants to convince the incumbents and the regulators that they can play. No, that's very true. That's an excellent point. So in case we weren't quite geeky enough yet. <laughs> no, this, let's get further geeky. Let's, let's do it. Geekier. <laughs> so you noted in your FERC remarks that the markets aren't recognizing the true value of storage. And as an example, you discussed locational marginal prices. Let's see if you can explain what that means. Okay, ready? Here goes. So locational marginal pricing really is something that's supposed to capture at a given point in time on a given node in a transmission and distribution network, the supply and demand and transmission constraints in that particular node so as to create a value for the provision of electrons to that node. Hey, that's pretty darn good. So yeah. uh, in, in plain language of energy supplied at a very specific place and time. Yes. Okay. So you noted that the startup and shutdown costs of conventional generators, which are substantial and which are not costs that you have with storage technologies, are not included in locational marginal pricing, but rather paid through what's called non-market uplift payments. So before we continue, let's explain what that means. Sure. So basically, when you're coordinating all these resources in the wholesale market, you've got certain generators that take a while to shut down or take a while to start up because you have to get spinning mass going. And these are oftentimes coal plants or gas plants, depending what kind of technology they go faster or slower. But fundamentally, what happens is that because there's no sense of the cost of that startup and shutdown, because it doesn't happen instantaneously and it's not costless, because that's not priced in, there's this problem where the markets will call for something at one time and then they won't need it for a, the next interval, but then they need it again for the following interval. So there's this gap in between. Okay. And if the unit were to actually turn off because it's not needed in the interim unit, it wouldn't be able to turn back on in time to provide at that following unit. Okay. And so because of that, the way these wholesale markets work is rather than make a call for, wow, we really want to value flexibility or alternatively reflect the true costs of this, it's just settled out of market. There's an agreement, okay, you're not needed in this interval coming, but you're needed the interval afterwards, so you don't have the technical capacity to shut down if we want to have you in the, the interval after the next. So we're just going to give you this money to stay online at sort of a low rate. Aha. And then that way you're available when we need you in that future interval. Okay. So it's non-market because it's basically guaranteed. It's not going to respond to an immediate market signal. And it's an uplift payment because we're basically paying them to be there no matter what. Yeah. It's not the same as a capacity payment because that's sort of a different concept. This is just taking stock of the fact that startup and shutdown is its own costs and for more efficient grid utilization, the wholesale markets have determined that making these non-market payments makes things work better. 
even though it's non-market. Which to me sounds vaguely like having a market workaround to kind of a peculiarity of a certain kind of technology. Sure. Frankly, and prior to this, it might have been something where you say, well, what's the alternative? Right. And granted, that alternative might have been like, for example, I don't know, if there were particularly fast responding turbines or certainly pumped hydro would join into that. But fundamentally, the trouble here is that energy storage can provide that flexibility. And the lack of those startup and shutdown costs being reflected in locational marginal prices effectively devalues those marginal prices. Exactly. If the startup and shutdown costs were in there, those prices would be higher for the kinds of intra-hourly flexibility, for example, that storage can provide, or inter-hourly sometimes, and then you would be able to bid for that and say, hey, we can provide this. So the lack of those costs being priced in means that you're effectively shutting out some flexibility resources, at least on the margin. You're effectively not recognizing the true value of an instantaneous storage system. Right. And that, in, in essence, tilts the playing field toward the old conventional generators that the markets were tweaked to work around in the first place. Right. For which we're not paying the full cost. Yeah, and I believe FERC did a study of this and found that across all wholesale markets that it regulates, that this was about a billion dollars of payments wow. in a year, which sounds like a ton, except when you realize that as a fraction of all payments, it's actually quite small. Well, but, yeah. you know, a billion ain't chump change. <laughs> and uh, this is actually part of why I think FERC is also now asking all the different organized markets to collect and report data on uplift allocations. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's interesting. So Herman Trabish, who's absolutely one of my favorite writers on grid power, had a recent article in Utility Dive called, What's the Value of Energy Storage? It's Complicated. And we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. And now, among other things, Herman notes that in its recent procurement, Southern California Edison chose several forms of energy storage, including battery systems, instead of natural gas peaker plants to meet peak demand, in part because those peaker plants are extremely underutilized. So they're running only about four percent of the time, and that makes them really expensive. Herman also notes that storage systems will really help to flatten the so-called duck curve in California, which shows how demand jumps up after people get home from work and flip on the air conditioning. So how much of the future of storage do you think is in this kind of application, being a provider of energy that can actually displace gas peaker plants, as opposed to some of the other markets that storage might play in? Sure. No, I think this is actually a very exciting place as costs have come down and come down faster than folks had anticipated, we're now seeing this as a real use case and cost-effective use case for energy storage, this duck-flattening use case. You've, you've seen a couple of CEOs of energy companies, you've seen the head of AES and the head of NextEra both come out saying they don't expect that we should need to build gas peakers in the future because energy storage can do what they do and provide more value to the systems. I think it was back at, in October at Energy Storage North America, the folks from GE's energy unit, which I guess is now called Current, said, we see energy storage at prices today already cost competitive with maybe the bottom 20% of gas peakers. Hmm. And this is a company that builds gas turbines. So mm. it's really striking how that's changed. And 
the reason why that is so exciting is in part because, you know, you talked about the utilization of these gas peakers may be something like 4%. Yeah. So out of 8,760 hours, that's maybe 350 hours a year, right? If you say so. Hey, I'm doing math <laughs> in my head while I talk. So that means that you've got maybe another 8,000 hours of the year where that resource will just be sitting there. Right. The great thing about energy storage is that it can do that, right? It can provide those 350 hours, which is usually going to be during peak periods on a specific set of days of the year. Mm-hmm. But during those other 8,000 hours, it can, for example, provide grid services such as frequency regulation, which we've been talking about. Depending on where it's located, it can help relieve congestion in the transmission system. Right. So instead of an expensive asset sitting there doing nothing 96% of the time, it can do something else useful. Yeah. What The name of the game here is efficient utilization of all assets on the grid. You know, I'm so glad you said that because my very next comment was that I... I like to think about storage not as a source of energy, as a replacement for a generator, but as a way of optimizing the grid, filling in the valleys and flattening the tops of these load curves and making it more efficient. Germany, for example, is spending 100 million euro to install six lithium-ion battery plants at power plants, which will be used just to stabilize the grid and absorb oversupply and then letting it feed back into the grid as needed. Do you know of of any studies or metrics that focus in on that point, like how storage improves overall grid efficiency or has a particular cost competitive edge in in an optimizing role? Well, just to further explain the concept here, right? So with energy storage, for example, and let's just remove clean, quote unquote, from this picture. And let's just talk about whatever grid you've got. Let's say it's a bunch of gas and coal, right? Okay. Those generators have to cycle up and cycle down based on the particular needs of the grid at given points in time. And that's not so efficient, particularly if you have some resources sitting idle or sitting at very low heat rates. And what happens is if you put energy storage on here to handle some of those fluctuations, for example, instead of having maybe a more consistently running combined cycle plant but has slight fluctuations in its heat rates. And then you have a simple cycle turbine that's on and off and on and off and cycling quite a lot, which is also just an inefficient way to burn fuel. You can have the energy storage paired with that combined cycle plant, and it can basically do all the cycling so that the plant can have as consistent an output as possible. And so when you do that, you're making sure that your utilization of that, for example, combined cycle plant is much better. It's operating more stably at output and so is better able to provide the value that it can over time. And I might add, probably without burning quite as much fuel. So that's what we're talking about in a very sort of simple use case scenario. In terms of studies for what this can do grid-wide, I think that I might have to uh, do a little bit of culling into many of the reports out there that are sort of modeling full systems to figure this out. But I think that this is still a fairly new concept and one that, frankly, is a little tough to model 
which is part of why it's hard to find studies on this. Yeah, and that's why I asked the question. Because <laughs> <laughs> is that study out there? Tell us. That. I haven't been able to find it yet, but I mean, there there must be some kind of metric that can sort of represent the efficiency of an overall grid. Yeah, God, I wish there was some sort of really dedicated graduate student out there that just wanted to write mm. their thesis on this. Well, maybe we'll be lucky enough to have one as a listener who's going to just go hit it right now. Hit me with an email, graduate student. <laughs> So, so far we've been talking mostly about large storage systems that play various roles on the transmission system or at the utility scale, but let's switch to the residential market for a moment, yeah. which is probably what most people think about when they think of storage. They think about the power wall at home. How is the relatively new market for home-based battery storage systems doing, do you know? You know, residential is right now going to be very niche, right? This is something that is still recent in terms of having behind the meter storage as a business. And your early adopters are going to be folks who either are, for example, have really, really high value of continuity of service. They might run their own business from home or have constant computation needs. It might be folks who are, for example, also in an environment where maybe they have reliability issues if they're very far at the end of the grid, as it were. But it's really niche at this point. Now, that could change depending on, for example, what happens with things like net energy metering, where you have a bunch of folks with solar panels on their roofs. And right now, those the output of those panels that's not consumed on site is sold back to the grid at a fairly robust value. And I know states are having conversations about what net energy metering might look like in the future, if it is net energy metering at all. Certainly in Hawaii, we've seen it's the first state that's kind of starting to figure out what other options that you have in that future. And that could very quickly create a lot of adoption of energy storage to the extent that you might see folks seeing more value in self-supply, particularly if it's paired with things like time of use rates. Right, right. So there's a lot of moving pieces in the regulatory space for what might happen there. Yeah. But really, at this point in time, it's still very early stages. And I think that you'll see things change both as regulations change and as the costs of these units continue to decline. Yeah, exactly. I think, generally speaking, the the really big, robust market for residential storage is, is waiting for those regulatory changes such that that those storage systems can get properly paid yeah. for contributing to the grid, where they really can't right now. They can, you know, a, a homeowner can have the joy of having his power on when the grid goes down, things like that. But the storage system as an asset isn't really going to get paid properly for being there on the grid without some of these kind of value of solar or ancillary market being implemented on the distribution grid. Two follow-on thoughts from that. One is that this is not the first time you might hear someone like me bemoan the misalignment between price signals to end users and what the system needs, right? Right. Certainly that's something, yeah, demand charges I think are an interesting example of this, right? Where right. you're charging people for sort of the effective bandwidth that they're using, but 
that demand charge is 24 hours a day. And maybe that bandwidth is really only an issue during certain hours right. and not others, right? Right. So there's a misalignment between the signal you're giving the end user and what the system actually values. Yeah. But the other follow-on thought from this is, as Severin Bornstein of UC Berkeley would say, these technologies are enabling end users to adapt. And that's what makes them so interesting, is that what happens in the regulatory space now is not a sort of unidirectional impact. It's going to create its own set of incentives and disincentives every time regulations change. And now there are more and more end-user technologies that can be adopted to adapt to those regulatory changes, storage being perhaps the most visible one, but certainly not the only one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this is not a static situation here, right? I mean, you put in new regulations, and then people respond in a certain way, and then that changes the character of the market, and then that leads to more market changes and so on. Right. Well, I mean, just take, for example, time of use rates. Right. You're incenting people to shift their consumption. So at the beginning, that's great. But And mind you, we don't really worry about this at this point because it's maybe a far-off future. But in that far-off future, the logical result is that all that energy is time-shifted and you, you no longer have the, the problem that you had that TOU was supposed to solve. Right. Now you probably have a different problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So of the various sectors where storage can play a role, commercial, utility, residential, and so on, where is the growth going to be in the distributed storage space? Sure. First of all, I am not in the business of giving investment advice. Yeah, neither am I. But I will say that I think that certainly in the near term, from behind the meter, it's going to be in large commercial and industrial installations. Mm -hmm. That's certainly where you're seeing existing installs happening. Right. If you're on the distribution system, I think it's really interesting to see what happens that sort of maybe like the substation level, right? Whether we're going to see these sort of larger projects that are there to augment the distribution system, but they're not behind the meter, they're front of the meter. Because that's a really useful and interesting place for storage to be. Interesting in part because it's unclear exactly who owns and operates it if it's there. Mm. But I also think that there's a lot of opportunity there to the extent that loads are getting peakier all across grids across the country and there's going to be a need on the front of the meter to do something to deal with that. Yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it. Final question. There are a lot of different storage technologies out there. And in fact, I should probably link to another old article I wrote where I kind of detailed what some of those different technologies are. But is there any particular one that, that you're especially bullish on right now? I love all of my children. <laughs> and You're not going to say which one is your favorite? I, 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 I will say this. I will say that different energy storage technologies have different performance characteristics. They provide different services and different value. So that's like saying, God, I'm bullish on short stops and not first basements. It's like, eh, I mean, yeah. they, they do different things. So right. I'm not going to tell you which one's better than the other. I will say that certainly there's a lot of enthusiasm over the cost-effective deployment of what's called, you know, long-duration energy storage. And in this case, I think folks are oftentimes referring to things like flow batteries. Yeah, that was my thought. And flow batteries are 
still electrochemical batteries, but you're basically enabling them to run for a very long time by using liquids that you can store in very large tanks. And it's the same electrochemical principles as a regular battery, but because you're running these aqueous batteries with very large tanks of fluid, you can effectively run them for very, very long times. So they're not flexible in the same way that like a lithium ion battery might be, right. but they certainly can go for many, many hours and still maintain good charge and good lifetime. Yeah, I, I got to agree with you there. I think there's a, definitely going to be a very strong couple of years ahead here for flow batteries. Well, Jason, this has really been fun. A lot more fun, actually, than I thought it would be, is considering how geeky it is. I was going to say... I am so glad to hear that I have made the discussion of batteries on the grid really exciting. Because, <laughs> well, it's exciting know. for me anyway. I was going to say, I will tell you that this is a topic that will make folks eyes glaze over, but that's just their loss because this is where a lot of exciting future economic and regulatory activity is. Oh, I agree. And it's going to be absolutely core to the energy transition that's going on. Well, thanks a bunch for joining us, and we'll definitely have to reconvene and talk about some of the other deeper, darker subjects involved in storage sometime soon. I would be delighted. Thank you so much, Chris. Awesome. That was Jason Berwin, Policy and Advocacy Director of the Energy Storage Association in Washington, D.C. I hope my listeners now have a much more complete idea of what storage on the grid is about. It's a much more complex market with many more applications than just batteries backing up a home solar system, for example, and many of them aren't even about supplying kilowatt hours. And like the rest of energy transition, supporting more storage on the grid will require a whole suite of changes in regulations, markets, and business models, in addition to the hardware and software that people might normally think about when they think of storage. And in this interview, we only really talked about grid-connected storage. Some of the most cutting-edge work in storage right now is in helping off-grid microgrid systems to become totally powered by renewables. Not just off-grid home systems with solar PV, but islands running renewably powered microgrids. We'll have to dive into that subject in a future episode. I'm charged up. Yeah, I'm charged up. You notice I ain't have to raise my voice or get a headache. This man screaming to death, get him a medic. I don't gotta do all of that, I take a leave. But when you finish, everyone just take a leave. I'm passive aggressively playing chess with me. You wouldn't win in the end if you was Chesapeake. I'ma let that sit there for a moment. Now everyone give his family my condolence. Charged up. I'm charged up. <laughs> I'm charged up. I'm not charged up. Where's my battery? I need my battery. Someone give me a battery. I, I need to get charged up. I'm on like 1%. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The UK government last week cancelled a £1 billion sterling competition for carbon capture and storage, CCS, technologies. Two projects had been in the running to build plants demonstrating CCS at commercial scale. One backed by Shell and SSE at the natural gas-fired Peterhead power plant, and another backed by Drax at its coal-fired power plant in Yorkshire. Both plants had been billed as the world's first full-scale commercial CCS project of its type. Now both plants have been scotched, because without the billion-pound federal incentive, the economics simply don't work. 
And this is actually fairly typical of CCS projects. Their costs are immense because the technology is still fairly young. Other than a few small projects elsewhere in the world where a small part of the power plant's carbon emissions are being captured and then sold for other uses, like being used in an oil extraction project, there are still no full-sized, full-chain CCS projects anywhere in the world. And why? Because it's really expensive. I detailed the reasons for this and summarized the largest CCS projects at the time in a 2013 article called Why Carbon Capture and Storage Will Never Pay Off, which we'll link to in the show notes. Two months before I wrote that piece, I interviewed Maria Vanderhoven, executive director of the IEA, at a World Future Energy Summit in Abu Dhabi. I asked her what would happen to IEA's 450 scenario, which lays out what the world needs to do to avoid catastrophic climate change, if CCS didn't work out. She answered, we'll need at least 10 large demonstration projects to scale up from pilots to commercial installations, but nevertheless, you can see it has slipped down the political agenda. It's true. It's costly. There are too many other issues at stake. People are afraid of it sometimes because they don't want to have it stored underground because it's terrible. There's something they are afraid of. So in some way or the other, at this moment, CCS doesn't fly. It doesn't. Well, now we know that, as I speculated in that piece, without massive federal subsidies, CCS still doesn't fly. Which brings us to item two. The 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP21, is underway in Paris this week, and hopes have been riding high all year that this one will finally result in real binding action on climate change. But one of the major problems with the various climate change mitigation scenarios that have been put forth by the IEA, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, and many other government and non-governmental bodies, is that they generally forecast a bright future for CCS technology and see it as a really major part of the solution. Now, with the UK government backing away from its CCS pledge, it will be interesting to see if the delegates to the COP21 conference continue to maintain that CCS will be part of humanity's suite of solutions to the climate change problem. If they do, then I think it will be with a wink and a nod. If there are any listeners who haven't checked out episode 5 of our podcast, in which I interviewed longtime climate campaigner Jeremy Leggett, then I strongly recommend that you do. You won't find a more clear-eyed and veteran perspective on climate negotiations anywhere else. I asked Jeremy if he thought that CCS had a future, and not only did he say no, but he also said that no one else really thinks it does either. So it will be most instructive to see if the COP21 delegates are really ready to buckle down and grapple with the extremely difficult problem of scaling back our emissions without a techno-fix fairy tale like CCS riding to the rescue, or if they are simply going to continue mouthing pleasing platitudes. I regret to say that my money is on the latter. Today I received an email from an organization called Biofuel Watch, which speculated that so-called negative emissions technologies would be popular at the conference. This technology, Bioenergy with Carbon Capture, or BECCS, imagines that burning biofuels, where the living things that produce the biofuel took their carbon from the air, and then capturing and sequestering the carbon dioxide after burning them. Thus it would actually remove carbon emissions from the air, hence the negative emissions moniker. BECCS is even more of a fairy tale than CCS on a coal or gas power plant because biofuels contain far less energy and are much more energy intensive to produce than coal or gas. If you listen to the previous episode of this podcast on EROI, you'll immediately understand why this is so. Yet Biofuel Watch expects negative emissions technology to be widely embraced at the Paris Conference by the IEA, the World Bank, and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, in addition to energy corporations like Shell. Why? Because, as Biofuel Watch says, 
It, quote, serves primarily to legitimize ongoing fossil fuel burning and to delay genuine climate mitigation actions. It would also, I might add, give these august international leaders one more way to pretend that there is a painless path into a low-carbon future, one in which they are not going to have to say anything nobody wants to hear, or ask anyone to sacrifice anything, or take any politically difficult actions. But for now, I'll reserve my skepticism, and we'll see what they actually do, and discuss it in a future episode of the show. For now, buena suerte, COP21. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.